Welcome to our workplace violence number two, our 201st webinar. Uh, and this is second, uh, a second part to a two-part series. I'm Charles Denham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global, and I'll be the MC today. We're thrilled to have some terrific recorded sessions, and we have uh, uh, two great gentlemen to be reactors uh, today as well. And this is the second part of a two-part series. And what I thought I would do is uh, show a videotape that we think is, uh, is just terrific. Uh, this was generated by the Emergency Nurses Association, uh, for whom we have a terrific amount of respect and have been very helpful with us and real champions of care at the front line. make it publicly known what is happening to nurses. We get kicked and punched and cussed at, and we're expected to just keep a smile on our face. Patients and their family members are so raw. They may be very angry. They may kind of lash out at you. Some days you just kind of feel like a punching bag. Over the 10 years I've been a nurse, the environment has become more aggressive. We've come so far that every one of our rooms here in our emergency department has a sign that states it's a crime. Assaulting or threatening behavior will not be tolerated. It's getting difficult sometimes to keep smiling. Especially if a patient comes to you and they're yelling at you or they're upset because it took longer for me to give them pain medication than it should have. But you can't say to that patient, hey, I was just trying to save someone's life next door. Our society does not value what it takes to take care of someone. I feel like they feel entitled that a nurse is here to serve you. And I think that's maybe where the problem starts. We're here to help you. Every time you take care of a patient, you're trying to give something from yourself. You're trying to give respect and give kindness and your knowledge, you know, and if it just is always taking, 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 same as with anything in life, you run out of steam. And I think a lot of the nurses are running out of steam. Emergency nurses, their average stay in an emergency nurse as a profession is about two years. After about two years, they tend to go to seek other things. Sometimes the change comes out of necessity. And I think more and more nurses have to find a way to have their voice heard. I am part of the Emergency Nurses Association, and we stay up to date with national policy that involves the healthcare field. I've been very active with Day on the Hill. When we, as the emergency nurses, go to Washington, D.C., we tackle issues that are the most pressing at the time. We have that firsthand experience to tell them these are the stories that are affecting the emergency care nurses throughout the nation. My focus has been on the challenges we face with workplace violence, both in terms of understanding the magnitude of the problem, but also determining what we can do about it. There is some legislation in D.C. around workplace violence and some mandates around what facilities need to do. And that's something that, yes, we're gonna to continue to advocate for legislation on that. And I think the more that we talk about it and the more that we gather data about it and really know the absolute magnitude of it, I think we will see that we accomplish greater things around eradicating workplace violence.
So we are really, really uh, pleased uh, to be working with uh, the Emergency Nurses Association and we'll have them come to speak with us. Now, last month, our webinar last month was regarding uh, uh, the entire area of workplace violence. Uh, and uh, what transpired was that we uh, understood, and, and as we go through the definition, we realized that, uh, that the broadened definition of the issue of workplace violence encompasses much that is not physical much that is not just the physical typical violence that we would see uh, and that we uh, have been discussing. And as a result of, um, of looking at this uh, issue, uh, we see that the, the non-physical uh, or verbal and nonverbal and threatening, intimidating, harassing, humiliating uh, words or actions, bullying, sabotage, sexual harassment. And so many of these are just absolutely critical issues uh, that we need to address. And they're very hard to really discuss today because we don't have the best of definitions. And so uh, I highly recommend that you go back to last month and see the kind of where are we in the state of workplace violence. Violence. Uh, and Vicki um, Vicky King from MD Anderson did a terrific job of reviewing that for us, uh, which, was, uh, which was really spectacular. Uh, and we really recommend that you go uh, uh, to our website and go back to uh, see some of that work. Now, what we've done is, uh, and what we'll do today is, is forego some of the preamble discussions for those of you that are uh, with us with us live, and we'll be recording for those that are on uh, our podcast um, uh, more detail, but we have two really terrific uh, speakers with us today and uh, at reactors with us today. And so uh, because we're, we're really blessed to have them, what we're going to do is uh, just move immediately to a discussion with Vicki. Vicki put what you see on the screen. Um, uh, she put together a terrific presentation for us. And what we did was we asked Vicki and Chief Adcox uh, to speak with us. And what we'll first hear from is uh, Dr. Casey Clements. So you'll hear Vicki again. Uh, we recommend that you watch her in our last video, in our last webinar. But what we'll do is we'll move to Dr. Casey Clemens. Dr. Casey Clemens uh, is the uh, not only the clinical director of the emergency department in, at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, where I've had the pr privilege to do extra training and actually was on faculty in systems engineering, health systems engineering, but Dr. Uh, Dr. Clements has been an expert in, sep in sepsis for us for many years, and he has now uh, taken the lead on uh, safety, occupational safety and safety across the Mayo Clinic and very passionate about this topic. So what we'll do first is listen to uh, Casey Clements, Dr. Casey Clements, and then we'll have um, uh, Bill uh, Adcox uh, and uh, John Nance, who's uh, a JD, uh, as well as a patient safety leader. Uh, Bill is the chief security officer and vice president at MD Anderson, and John Nance is the best-selling author and um, uh, aviation uh, and healthcare uh, uh, patient safety leader. So we'll hear first from Casey Clements, and then we'll go to the, our two reactors. So, Dr. Clements, thank you for sharing your thoughts today. Really, this is more of a conversation on the non-physical workplace violence. 
um, help us understand where we are in, in understanding it and what how we can kind of tackle this? Yeah, it's actually a really hard question. Um, I've worked on workplace violence since 2014, and I still could not come close to defining the scope of the issues that we're dealing with. It's it's a it's a it's a black box. We don't know what we don't know. You know, we, we do know that for physical violence, only 19% of events are ever reported. Um, for non-physical violence, it's far lower. Um, we have done a, some survey studies on this, uh, and uh, you know, their their selection bias and those people are probably more likely to respond if they've um, if they've had events, but. The non-physical violence is far more pervasive than I think that we've given it credit for. And I've heard anecdotally from, for example, our our phone staff at the at the clinic, who for people who are making appointments, that there's just there's abuse happening all the time. Um, I I do know personally of stories where um, doctors have gone home from a shift and packed up their family and left their home for the night because of threats. Um, and certainly we deal with harassment and um, everything from microaggressions to bias requests. I don't want, a, you know, a person with a different color skin to take care of me, et cetera. Um, and, and all the way up to the significant physical threats. Um, so it's, it's a spectrum of, of problems. So when we think about this, are there, uh, you know, we're going to be reviewing the ASHRAM toolbox and the toolbox from uh, the Emergency Nurses Association and others. Everyone's trying to get their arms around that. Uh, any advice for our frontline organizations that are wrestling with this area? It kind of feels like there aren't clear handles on it yet. And I'll add one nuance to that. Uh, it's more than one incident. Like when you look at the definition of each of these words, uh, it's more than an, one incident when you talk about bullying and harassment, intimidation, threatening behavior, and that kind of thing. Can you help us maybe put some handles on it or kind of where we are? We're looking at a number of frameworks. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, you know, whenever you build a toolkit, you have it so they're generally a little bit higher level. So that you can, you know, how to build a system, what to have at hand, how to respond to different situations. What I think is missing and I think staff really need is a highly reliable system to both mitigate things and to respond when bad things happen. And, and I don't claim that we are expert in this. I don't think anybody is, actually. There certainly are organized follow-up programs with staff when things have happened. Um, uh, but we really need a highly reliable system on how to respond. And that goes beyond just a toolkit. Uh, that goes into almost a playbook for um, if X, then Y. And, and I haven't seen something at that level of detail yet. Um, and, and so we're trying to grow that ourselves. And I suspect other organizations are as well. So Casey, when we talk about definitions, uh, are, are there good definitions that we can use uh, that, that might help us? The, the joint commission definitions are pretty high and broad. What's your take on that? And then uh, we're gonna show you one classification and see what you think of it. Yeah, I, I actually, we use the joint commission definition that's been updated in the last couple of years and it is intentionally very broad and open to some interpretation. That makes sense to me, um, since behaviors don't usually happen in isolation. A lot of times there is a progression where 
for example, someone may start with microaggressions against their care team. And if that's allowed to continue, that can progress. Um, so bad behavior kind of begets more bad behavior. So it makes sense to me to have it broad. That said, I understand that it's really hard to operationalize systems around very broad definitions because the behaviors do vary significantly in that definition. Casey, this is the NIOSH uh, classification set. Can you kind of crosswalk that with how, how you interpret workplace violence? Yeah, and we've used this actually for many years. Um, and, and I can tell you that for healthcare, because remember, this applies to just beyond healthcare, the vast majority, the vast majority of violence that we deal with is actually type two violence, where it's a patient or a visitor who is committing some act on healthcare staff. There is, and I, we need to acknowledge this, there is some amount of type three violence in healthcare as well, where there can be bullying, intimidation, or mistreatment of coworkers or people whom we have a, a work relationship with. Um, and those are often handled differently. Um, we generally rely on HR for our type three violence. Um, and we try to manage type two violence um, in collaboration with security and the practice. Um, and I feel pretty strongly that the practice needs to be involved in that um, because security is very good at understanding um, uh, certain techniques, but we still have to care for these people. Um, you can't very easily just end a duty um, to care for someone. And so because we do that, that hand-in-glove collaboration between practice and security resources is really key. And um, based on our information, it, you know, it's a bit of an estimate, but I would say over 95% of the violence in healthcare that we deal with is all type two. Could that be because uh, a lot is underreported? Because we hear quite, uh, we hear a lot about uh, budgets getting cut and and staff kind of being intimidated regarding their jobs. If they don't do this, you're gone. Or if they don't uh, if they don't act in a certain way, uh, you know, their own livelihood is 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 threatened. So uh, and there's really no place to report that. Uh, so they just suck it up and deal with it. Yeah, I haven't I haven't actually heard of or dealt with that myself. I think some of that probably comes down to the culture that we work in. Right. Um, and and I think that the cultures and the values of, of Mayo Clinic have um, have not had that problem significantly. There's actually a lot of leadership support um, for doing the hard things and actually having these hard conversations about what we're dealing with. I haven't seen that kind of intimidation. So as uh, what forms of uh, lateral violence uh, uh, do you think are out there to be aware of? They, uh, you know, Ashram talks about hidden violence and they are really kind of referring to this lateral violence. And it's one that we don't talk about very much. Yeah, I think that we do within education a lot of the time because there is an inherent power differential between a teacher and a student or between an attending and a resident for example. And I think that there's awareness that with that power differential, there needs to be extra sensitivities towards behavior. Um, what I think we don't talk about as much is the really true lateral um, type three violence, which is sort of coworker on coworker. Um, and those are, I think, vastly underreported. When they are reported, um, oftentimes the, you know, it's handled internally to a unit. And so you may never hear about it um, at a higher level. So it makes data very limited on what we deal with. 
and there's special rules, you know, around um, around employment law. And when things go up to HR, we don't get to hear about them. Uh, and so, it, like I said, the response for type three violence is necessarily somewhat different than it is for type two. So Casey, as we as we think about uh, responding to the Joint Commission, is it reasonable to say that we have to cover all four types, even though some are more common than others, but at least have a mechanism? And then the second thing is, uh, uh, you mentioned the hand in glove relationships. It's really the practice, it's security, it's HR, uh, and anybody else uh, that should kind of be part of that cross-functional team. Oh yeah, it's really everybody. <laughs> Which that's not really a fair answer for you. I'm sorry, but um, there it, you need representatives throughout, and and you know we do a lot of triad leadership from uh, at Mayo Clinic. So there's usually um, administrative partners, nursing partners, physician partners within the practice. They definitely need to be involved, but we you, we need frontline um, voices in on this, and you know we don't often include PCAs in our boardroom meetings, but we need to. Um, and so I think that all of those voices matter. When we start talking about how do we address the different types of violence, I would also point out that with type one and type four violence, being that those don't have any business relationship related to the, the healthcare entity, those really are the responsibility of security um, and even law enforcement at that point, right? So type one violence is a crime. Um, and how do how how is it that local law enforcement and or security to healthcare organization are protecting people, places, and things? Um, and then type four with the personal relationship, there are high profile stories of when that goes very wrong, and someone comes in and assaults their ex boyfriend or girlfriend or someone. Uh, you know, I think of the doc, the emergency medicine doctor in Chicago who was shot in the parking lot um, at her workplace by by someone she had a personal relationship with. And so um, that's really the responsibility of security. It's really type two and three that get into internal workings more so uh, and are very complicated to manage in healthcare. So as we have had uh, our patients and families weigh in on this, they say, well, Dr. Denham, what about what Dr. Uh, McCary uh, and uh, others have said about the financial violence? They say, well, you know, if the leading cause of bankruptcy in America are uh, medical debt, and uh, some organizations, and I'm proud to say, having been on faculty at Mayo and worked with Mayo for, I guess, more than 15 years on many, many projects, I'm sure that this probably doesn't occur with Mayo, but uh, Dr. Macquarie describes um, uh, hospitals going after uh, families and taking away their homes. And, and, and you know, a, a one city he referred to had 25,000 residents and 22,000 lawsuits by the hospital, uh, um, uh, you know, financially going after patients. And we're hearing from our patient advocacy group, what about that? Is that, does that fit in this or not? Um, again, you're throwing me some curveballs this month. I know it's a uh, hard area. Yeah, but this is that's not something that I've heard of or considered before, to be honest. And it doesn't fit into the NIOSH framework. But remember, NIOSH is for occupational stuff, right? And so businesses going after individuals would not fit into uh, a, a standard workplace violence schema. That would be something separate. 
So coming back to the the leader, the targeting of leaders in our emerging threats community and practice, we know that this is keeping leaders up at night. And we know we recently saw in the press, University of Arizona, who's led by a physician actually, uh, had faculty that uh, kind of walked with their feet and just dissolved the group that was working with the university regarding the death of a, of a faculty member by a student. And this is increasingly be, becoming kind of a risk factor. Uh, I know our team, our MedTech team, we actually are training um, uh, protective details of ex-Secret Service and FBI officers to help with leaders. It's not common, but it is something keeping everybody up at night and kind of a, on the worry list. Do you want to address that? Yeah, it's a great question. And and I think it gets to the fact that neither the Joint Commission definition nor the NIOSH framework have anything to do with severity, right? So the severity of a threat um, is very different if it's from a demented person on a hospital floor who is mad at the nurse about having to take a medicine and they say that they're going to, um, you know, do something bad to that nurse. That is one level of of threat, especially if they don't have the capability to to perform whatever thing that they're threatening is. At the other end of that spectrum is I'm going to come in and I'm going to shoot my way through to the C-suite and kill everyone in the process. And so there necessarily has to be some level of threat assessment. Um, this is actually something that I think we've gotten a lot better at over the last several years. Um, there are professional threat assessors um, for people that don't know that, um, through law enforcement as well as security, um, to be able to to come in and say, how is this likely to happen or not? And they can take into account a vast array of, uh, of resources to be able to get information both about that individual, about their history, about the criminal, poss or about the possibility that they're going to um, undertake some criminal act, et cetera. And so... Uh, we need to be careful when we look at these that the severity of any action, physical violence, non-physical violence, has nothing to do um, with the Joint Commission definition or the NIOSH classification of types of violence. Um, the severity could be very bad um, uh, and uh, in any of those categories. So you mentioned anecdotally about knowing of an emergency medicine doctor that moved he and his family out of their home because of there was a potential risk. Uh, we here in California, unfortunately, right in front of where my former home was, had an emergency medicine uh, doctor run over, looked really intentional, and then the driver on the video got out of the car and actually went after him with a machete, and he passed away, and he was a much-loved emergency medicine doctor. Now, the interesting thing is the ED doctors we know that are on listservs, uh, they lit up with a great concern, and it sounds like many emergency medicine doctors are very concerned about their families and themselves, as evidenced by how many were inquiring: was this guy, was this a patient, or was this just, did this just happen? So it sounds like there's a that there's some significant worry about that in the emergency medicine doctor community. Yeah, um, and I'm going to be careful here because I am an ER doc, and I and I represent yeah. that, and I deal with these things, but. I think we have to be really careful here to to not single out the emergency department. The majority of violence in the hospital doesn't happen in the emergency department. It actually happens a lot of the times on hospital floors and, and we need to acknowledge that. Now, groups like the ENA have been out ahead of this for a long time and there have been, they've had a decent voice that people understand that this is a problem in EDs. It's also a problem elsewhere in the hospital. 
Um, and so I wouldn't single out emergency medicine in this. I actually think that this is something that concerns almost every specialty. Um, we know a lot about the ED. We know a little about the inpatient side. We know almost nothing about the outpatient side. Um, and the outpatient side, ambulatory care violence is the next black box that we haven't talked about that we need to open up. Um, because, it, you know, if there is a discreet one hour appointment with somebody and they're awful or you're, you're threatened, et cetera, you're less likely to report that because you can walk out of that room after an hour and think you don't have to deal with that either again or until next time. And so well, the reporting on and I agree with you uh, uh, regarding singling out ED. Actually, can't, as a former cancer doctor, I can tell you it's a big deal with dissatisfied patients and families and, uh, you know, in cancer, probably much more than uh, than the emergency department. And we have had um, killings that have occurred uh, even in Texas, where I trained at MD Anderson, where uh, disgruntled patients have, uh, have done that. Um, last question. I know that you have uh, only so much time. Uh, can you tell us about the the legislative initiatives and you're it sounds like you are helping promote some some new laws that could help us here so there's been a lot of movement and legislation in the various states over the last couple of years um i know arizona uh, actually has uh some new laws that are pretty prescriptive about what needs to be done related to signage and notification of patients etc um wisconsin actually passed a law last year um, which, um, you know, maintained increased penalties for everyone within healthcare to help protect them from workplace violence. Uh, in Minnesota right now, uh, we're actually advocating for some uh, funding to really help uh, healthcare entities. And I say entities because part of this is hospitals, but, you know, we don't think about nursing homes and ambulance services and a lot of other places in healthcare where this is affecting us. Um, but we're advocating for some funding uh, for competitive grants to be able to um, increase de-escalation or other kinds of training, improve infrastructure related to um, violence and move us from just response to mitigation and prevention. Um, and so we've been, we have a whole coalition of healthcare organizations in Minnesota that are working on that and, and, and we're helping out with that too. Well, thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Clements. You've been, uh, yeah, I know this is an area of passion for you. And uh, thank you for the great work that you're doing. We really appreciate your insights. No problem. Thank you very much for asking. So uh, Dr. Clements is the chief of the service, the clinical service of emergency medicine, but also safety. And we'll look forward to having him back to set up uh, uh, Chief Adcox and uh, John Nance to react. We just wanted to remind you where this work of our work has come from and then uh, Bill Adcox can kind of build on it. We, back in 2018, we started to focus on what was keeping leaders up at night or what should be keeping leaders up at night, the emerging threats. And what happened was we, uh, uh, we focused on uh, now 30 different topical areas and focus on both inside threats and outside threats and vulnerability. So you can go to uh, www.mobilepatientsafetyforum uh, uh, and you'll be able to watch that, that video and we'll put that link on our site and you can watch the video of participation in that community of practice. Basically what we've said is, our goal is to reduce the inside threats and the outside threats in a way that would allow us to have a greater safety zone, knowing we can't reduce them to completely. 
This slide uh, addresses those in uh, just a headline sort of format. And when we started and we were focusing on it, workplace violence stood out as one of these top 30 areas. However, when, and, and there were much overlap on some of the areas that are not physical violence. And then when the Joint Commission expanded the description of uh, what would be the definition of workplace violence, it, it, it actually causes us to look at a number of these areas, physical workplace violence, but also violent acts against leadership, which you just heard about just a moment ago, insider threats, intentional harm to patients, financial harm to patients I brought up there, uh, defamation and unfair press, when you go back to the definition, it actually, uh, cyber bullying that's outside of the physical uh, physical property of the, of the hospital is included because it's written or verbal and it's not limited to the, the physical property or real estate. And then preventable uh, death or injury. These all now are kind of an overlap area. And so before we ask these gentlemen to react, we're going to show just a short clip from uh, uh, the Emergency Preparedness Director, a frequent speaker on our behalf, Randy Steiner. He is the Director of Emergency Preparedness. And the reason I do this is we've expanded this community of practice beyond healthcare and beyond academic and non-academic medical centers and hospitals to higher education. So we're actually participating in dialogue right now with a number of higher education organizations that do have medical centers, but we're, we're reaching much beyond that to uh, higher education, our colleges and great institutions across the country. So we have just a three minute clip uh, of uh, Randy Steiner who was uh, in a meeting with us yesterday. Randy, what do we need to know about leadership and workplace violence against leaders? That's a great question. The, I think the first thing that you have to acknowledge in any type of you know, situation or potential threat situation is the, the, the possibility of its existence. Um, understanding that people in leadership positions can potentially be targets you know, based on nothing other than the whim of somebody who wants to make a splash or, or you know, in a, in a violent situation. So understanding that is there, understanding that you need as a leader or in a leadership position to, as we used to say in, the, in our pilot world, is put your head on a swivel, make sure that you're aware of what's going on in your surroundings and, and take every threat seriously. If something comes up, something that we may have beforehand been able to say, oh, that's just somebody talking, you know, it's more important as a leader, there's there's a, a much bigger risk, I think, to those types of statements. Those are directed specifically towards leaders. How important is leakage? Meaning that when we're hearing, we've got some warning signs of somebody starting to make threats, social media, and monitoring and getting ahead of some of these events. I think it's incredibly important. I think in a, in a lot of these situations of, of violent acts, I mean, in my case, it's in higher ed, you know, there was some something foretold the potential of coming, maybe not overtly saying I'm going to be shooting up a place or something like that. But there's always those warning signs, uh, you know, any situation where there's that potential for violence that has to be taken seriously by the university, by the administration, uh, by, by the, your counseling teams, by the police departments, you know, 
if those threats are out there, they cannot be looked at as being benign because too many situations have happened where these comments were made, they were being tracked, but nothing was followed up on, and these people ended up you know, taking a weapon and, and shooting up a school or a place of business. Have you seen workplace violence going up in higher ed? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's, it's definitely a bigger media story. Um, when it happens at school, but in, in general, I mean, you look at you know, what just happened in, in Michigan State University, you know, and other universities all through the country have been having the same issue, not just with people actually taking those steps towards workplace violence, but also in, you know, suicides are going up or drug addiction or overdoses based on, you know, stress of, of the university setting. But I, yeah, definitely, I believe that those, those instances of violence on college campuses due to their, their ease of access, uh, due to the, a lot of them are public spaces, um, you know, very few restrictions on, on coming and going, easy to do surveillance and blend in. Um, that all those things make a higher ed institutions a, a, a good target. Not to mention there's a lot of people who have an issue. You know, they were kicked out of a program or, you know, didn't get the grade that they wanted or something. There seems like there's a lot more stress factors that can sort of drive somebody down that road of, of eventually committing violence. So Randy and I have been in discussions uh, regarding uh, uh, the broader context of the of the academic universities with medical centers. Uh, the story and re recent story in Campus Safety Magazine really talked about this concept of leakage, which Bill uh, uh, would we'd love to have you kind of address. And and so what we'll do is we're going to have. Um, uh, Bill Adcox and uh, John Nance both react to what they've heard up to this point. Now, uh, it would appear that we focused a lot on the leader uh, piece, but we really got that out of the way. And then what we'll do is, uh, is have Vicki King take us step by step by step uh, through a framework uh, that is much broader than just this area. So we just wanted to make sure not to leave that area out. Um, uh, Bill Adcox is the Chief Security Officer and Vice President at MD Anderson Cancer Center. He's Chief of Police at the University of Texas at Houston. Uh, he's really a pathfinder in this threat safety science, this area of threat th safety science. And we'll have a, a book coming out with him as a co-author focusing on threat safety science in the future. And then John Nance is a JD. Uh, uh, as he shared with me, he's going to be a triple captain. He's going to—he's getting his captain's license uh, for ocean-going vessels. But uh, he was in the military, a military pilot, uh, a JD. He's uh, been really a go-to patient safety leader uh, for us in hospitals and patient safety. Former, formerly on the on the board of the National Patient Safety Foundation, as I was. ABC Good Morning uh, America commentator, uh, and also a best-selling author, both in fiction and in non fiction books and uh, we're looking forward to hearing from him uh, and so what I'd like to do now is in a, uh, Bill uh, Adcox will have to leave our, our, our uh, session uh, a little bit early and so Bill what we're going to do is go to you uh, and then have you react to what you heard from Casey then go to John and then Bill we will then uh, play the recording we did with Vicki uh, this week with you and have you kind of cover the four P's which we've already got in that clip or in that videotape. So uh, Bill, go to you first and then uh, to you, uh, John. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Denham. It's, it's great to be on the program. A lot of information was covered, a lot of areas to cover, but uh, I, and the, a couple of points I want to make. Number one is uh, the broad definition is important, uh, Joint Commission's broad definition. And, and remember, not all workplace violence is a crime. And so therefore, that multidisciplinary cross-functional team is very critical. And so in, here in, in our environment, we have we've added our own fifth typology, and that's suicidal ideation. And we do that because, you know, you, you were just talking about it with, with uh, uh, Randy about, you know, all the students and the different individuals that are, that are attempting to take their lives. And many of them, uh, you know, they complete that. And, and it's a very much of a problem. And here, working in a cancer environment, you can only imagine the, the despair that goes on. So that's important to know that you can, you can expand on that a little bit. That's why these broad definitions are important. So, uh, um, Dr. Casey Clemens mentioned there's no severity issue that's there. So what I would say to people is, is that every organization is different. And some of these organizations are large and have, have a lot of resources and a lot of expertise. Some do not. And so I, I believe what you do is you look at a general framework and then you, you, you really go into your own organization and look through there. And you really need to look at what do you need to do to actually have a threat assessment capability. So I would say to you, for example, uh, uh, let's say you have a smaller hospital system, maybe a regional hospital, it does not have a lot of resources. Well, you might not be able to hire and employ a, a person that has threat assessment expertise, but you certainly can have a partnership and an agreement with your local authorities, your local law enforcement authority, offer them a grant, for example, so that that grant is to send someone to the uh, uh, Association of Threat Assessment Professionals in California for a week, to help get them acclimated to become a member, to learn about it, become uh, 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 become more of a proponent towards threat assessment. And then you have some go-to people within your own local authority that understands what you're going through. You can do these, these types of things based on the size of your organization. So the other thing is, is to understand that there's both, there's both targeted and effective violence. And one of the things that they're talking about leakage, you talked about leakage earlier, you don't, you don't have leakage when it comes to 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 uh, effective violence, that means someone just just blows up and and attacks or does something. Uh, there's no there's no pre 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 work up to it. But there's almost always leakage when there's targeted violence when people are upset, and therefore you have to have this the systems in place. So really, you need to have have uh, integrated systems, integrated information coming in. So that's why it's so important that you have HR, that you have your security department, that you have the clinicians that are involved. The practice is critical to, to take the lead in this so that so that you're getting this information and you're able to put it together with a, with a multidisciplinary team. Then you have the threat assessment part where they can actually look at the severity. They can actually use structured judgment tools in, in order to, to grade it and find out what the risk is and bring it before the multidisciplinary team to set up safety plans, set up management plans to take a look at what, what needs to be done to get somebody some help so you can bring that threat level down. Then you also need to have that behavioral intervention team, which is that multidisciplinary team that's looking at this threat assessment that's coming in, that's looking at what needs to be done. And ultimately, where Dr. Clement said that, that as far as the mitigation and the response, that he believes that there's a weakness there and that no one's really got a, a great handle on it where they need to be, uh, that's where you really need to look at having a, an, an interventional team availability, a BERT team or whatever, somebody that can respond to the floor right away with the right expertise, knowing how to take care of things with the right type of restraint method methodologies or whatever, whether it's SAMA, uh, which is better than say what law enforcement uses pain compliance, 
where other people, that's not, a, that's not really a, a good thing in a hospital setting. So you need to have that type of deal. But again, you need to have a framework, a general framework. People need to come together and say, okay, what can our organization do? And put something in place. Something is better than nothing. And don't, don't think that everything's going to, there's not going to be perfection. Uh, you're dealing with human behavior, human, human uh, emotions, and, and it's, and it's going to be very difficult. But the, the key is, is that everybody needs to be on the same, same uh, page. You need to have executive leadership support and you just get something done. Fantastic, uh, Bill. We really appreciate it. And you go into a little bit more detail in the uh, in our program on effective and uh, targeted violence. And uh, after we finish that program, I'll ask John to respond regarding the role of boards. But we'll do that after we hear uh, Vicki go through uh, uh, the framework from the ENA. So, John, your reactions up to this point in time, and and then we're so blessed to have you then react after Vicki goes through a step by step approach from the ENA toolbox? Well, it's just very good to be here. And I think this is not only an emerging knowledge base, it's also something that really the population needs to be aware of. We've got a meaner population than we did before. We've got a lot of pressures. Uh, various sorts. Uh, certainly three years of COVID hasn't helped anything. And uh, and looking just broadly across all professions, uh, you see an incivility that has been increasing with the lack of, uh, of educational quality uh, for probably the last 70 years. So we have, we've put ourselves as a people into a, a different arena here that we've got to deal with on something other than just a reactive basis. As a matter of fact, one of the mainstays, as you'd well know, in aviation, uh, which has been, you know, one of my primogenitor areas, uh, has been uh, to try to get ahead of things by expecting failure, mostly human failure. That's what changed us in the 80s from a, a reactive uh, um, uh, reactive profession in which basically would give people complex airplanes and say, you boys be careful out there now here, rather than saying, okay, here are the things that can go wrong. Here are the ways that people fail. We're going to build a matrix of uh, capability to absorb the failures that we can no longer stop. Um, and, and I think that it really is, is where we are today. You talk about violence in the workplace for flight attendants, for instance, right now, this is worldwide, but especially in the United States, we've got a lot of angry people. Some are unbalanced, some are just angry, some are drunk, but the fact is that we've never had a situation uh, like we have in the past probably uh, 10 years in which the level of assaults, physical assaults on flight attendants and crew members in general uh, have just been getting completely out of hand. Um, used to, the federal air marshals didn't have all that much to do except for the occasional uh, worry about a hijacking. Nowadays, they're, they're suppressing uh, uh, violence in the, in the cabins at all times, in all places. Anyway, that's just to say that I think the, the process of making people aware of how, and I hate to use this term, but ubiquitous this is becoming in terms of uh, mean reactions, uh, surly reactions, uh, unhinged reactions, and uh, most of them are reactions, and sometimes just aggressive inability to handle your own emotions uh, exploding in a, in a situation where it might be otherwise understandable. In other words, a loved one is, is having trouble getting into the ED. Uh, somebody just finally gets to the explosive stage. All of this needs to be handled not in a way of 
kind of an esoteric, this is what can happen, but and this is what is happening, and we've got to be able to take care of it, especially with respect to knowing the signs and the symbols and the precursors. Uh, I would tell you that right now that I think there's another form of uh, violence, too. There are a lot of categories in this. And one of the forms of violence that bothers me an awful lot, because I've seen a lot of it over the last 25 years increasing, is uh, is nurse-to-nurse hostility in, um, in the hospital workplace. And the fact that it is so indigenized that it isn't even recognized to a certain extent. I have very veteran nurses look at me kind of in a puzzled fashion when I say, you know, uh, the statistics of nurses, new nurses leaving during the first six months because no one was socking them in the nose, but they weren't supported. A lack of support, a lack of, uh, of a base of camaraderie, lack of teamwork is, is a form of assault in terms of a situation where you're expecting high levels of functioning from people uh, and you're not getting it. So there, there are a lot of things that we need to take a look at, just very much the same as the FAA and the uh, Department of Transportation this week are having a, a get-together in McLean, Virginia, to lay out on the table all the things that they know about some of the recent incidents in aviation is for the purpose of saying, let's get down to the anatomy of this and look at what we've been looking at, but maybe haven't been seen overall. Where are these elements? And, and they don't have to be physical. As I say, they can be just lack of support. But I think the more we understand about this, I mean, it's all human, of course, the more we understand about it, the more we're able to react in a way that isn't just purely reactive, but it's actually proactive in coming up with uh, with different basis solutions. Um, I would also, it's, uh, uh, I, I'd say threat assessment is probably the right term, but we've got several different terms floating around. Uh, prediction is, uh, is part of it, but the ability to simply say, okay, this is a ripe environment for trouble. And do we have a methodology of expecting it, anticipating it, and whatever we come up with in terms of, of the way to react to it, have we educated all our people, not just given them a roadshow, but I mean, really indigenize this into the culture. John, thank you so much. And we'll keep, I, uh, you know, I want to make sure we have enough time for the whole program of, uh, of Vicki, but you brought up some really critical points. And I want to go back to both of you uh, on this and we'll keep it fairly brief and then we'll have a longer time, John, for you at the end. But you brought up some really key issues. And uh, you brought up the issue of the flight attendants. And I remember back when you and I were on the board of the National Patient Safety Foundation, and we were looking at the NASA reporting system uh, by pilots when they would be reporting near misses and issues like that. I just want to maybe have you ask you, how is reporting going of the, the workplace violence uh, with the flight attendants and the, and the airlines? Just see what our state is. And then, Bill, come back to you. I know you've got some wonderful thoughts about reporting and why reporting is so important and what you can do as a leader for culture. So I just want to come back to both of you real quick, and then we'll go to Vicki. Okay. Go ahead, John. Okay. Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, there is a lot of dynamic tension between and among uh, the airlines uh, in particular, their employees, the unions involved, and there's a lot of finger pointing and uh, basically on the on the basis of people not able to speak up because uh, they end up basically having something done 
uh, directly or indirectly to them that impugns their ability to to feel like they're, they're safe. In other words, um, in most cases, there's no formal response that's negative. There's nobody saying you shouldn't have spoken up. But in some airlines, and I could tell you which ones, uh, uh, you can end up losing your job as a pilot or a flight attendant by talking to the media about anything at any time. And this simply isn't right. This is a form of, uh, of intimidation that runs to the heart of then reporting anything. There's a, a case that has bubbled into the um, uh, public arena just in the past few months uh, of a senior captain at Delta Airlines. Now, we'll get in the names, but she's been uh, uh, she's a Ph.D., uh, very accomplished lady. And she uh, uh, came to her airline, uh, flew down to Atlanta a number of years ago and with plenty of credentials, basically laid out what they needed to do to improve their safety system. The response was to try to certify her as crazy. Uh, Delta has had to pay a lot of money for this, and the embarrassment is there, but they have not learned the lesson, I don't believe. I don't think any of the airlines have, that it is so easy to retaliate directly or indirectly. And all you do is do that to one person, and you have chilled everybody else. Bill, your thoughts on reporting, and then we'll go to you and uh, and Becky. A couple of things. Thank you very much, uh, uh, John. Um, talking about reporting, if we do not know what's really going on, it's impossible for us to develop a, a response to, to it. So I will tell you for sure that threat assessment professionals are, are never in the prediction business. They look at severity, they look at risk, they look at, at, at probabilities. So it's very important that you have the professionals. But the other piece of it is, is that when, when you really, when you think about this, this issue of retaliation, um, and, and John, you said it, you know, one person gets retaliated against and it just sends a shock. Mm -hmm. So uh, to me, there's an old saying that says that, you know, uh, one person's perception is their reality. And so yes. if people perceive that there's a tremendous amount of retaliation going on, then, then that's the way they're going to react. Mm -hmm. And it, it, so the facts won't always come into play. So we have to be real careful that we have a culture of trust, a culture of safety in, in all of our organizations. And, and I think that's important. In, in our business, in, in terms of knowing what, where the crime is, they've done studies. They do victimization surveys, they do arrest surveys, and then they take they take a look at at, at uh, uh, other other types of data and information that's coming in to be able to pinpoint. If the community does not trust their law enforcement, the community does not trust their district attorneys in order to prosecute. If there's no trust, a lot of crimes not going to get reported. There's only two crimes that almost that's going to get reported. One of them is homicide, and the other one is auto theft because you need a vehicle. Mm -hmm. Other than that, people don't always going to report things. So you really don't know what's going on. How are you going to how are you going to have an effective response? Same thing as workplace violence. Same thing is with retaliation. Same thing. We have to have open, honest, and trustworthy organizations at the very top leadership that support people to have have a level of principle, bringing in character-based people to the organizations. And let's and and we can re, we can root out some of these problems, but but that's what I would say, and, and I thank you very much for the time. Hey, Chuck, well, thank you so so much. I'm going to uh, jump right in, uh, Bill, uh, so that uh, I know that you have a hard stop, and uh, I want to come back to uh, and give generous time to to John. We're so blessed to have you with us today, John, but also uh, to address the board issues. So thank you, Bill. Uh, and uh, what I wanted to do just to introduce Bill and Vicki King covering in a very good detail, just a few documents that all of you should be aware of. First off, the ECRI 
top 10 claims. As you can see here, uh, the number two claim is physical and verbal violence against healthcare. This is for 2023. They have a report you can download if you tell them who you are. And I highly recommend that you review all of them. There are a number of topics that we uh, that are close to our hearts. Uh, we're also, we, we at TMIT are doing a lot regarding children and drowning and preventable harm, but we won't cover that today. Want to show the second slide of the two slide series that we have just drawing your attention. They rank at number two, and you'll see that nurses are at 26%, uh, but uh, it, it's uh, very interesting that we've got uh, a pretty high number for, um, uh, for our uh, physicians. And then the Ashram Workplace Violence Toolkit, we didn't today have enough time to really go through it. We think it's excellent, and but we think that all of these frameworks need to be adjusted to your organization because it's uh, absolutely critical to customize it. Um, the Toolkit for Mitigating Workplace Violence by ENA and AOL, uh, AONL is excellent. And what we're going to do is use these topics uh, as uh, as a way of having the discussion now with Vicki King, and we've taken each one of these with Vicki, and then John will be coming back to you. So what we'd like to do is have you watch Vicki. She is speaking at a, at a national conference on workplace violence today, and so we recorded this on Monday. So Vicki, thank you so much for your prior presentation in our kind of part one of workplace violence. Uh, when we talk about the non-physical categories or uh, discussion regarding the non-physical violence, uh, we really need to have some good operational definitions. You know, when we talk about threat and we go through kind of the list of the various terms that are used in the Joint Commission definition, how do you tackle that when you try to put together plans and policies and procedures? Well, uh, when you begin to look at the specific types of behaviors and everything needs to be behavior focused. Uh, and when we start to think about what is a threat? Well, you may think, well, a threat is a distinct communication of intent to harm. And that's how most of us think of it. Uh, but there are so many other things that really constitute a threat, especially in the non-physical world. You can have an implied threat. You can have a conditional threat. Um, it's not just the overt threats that are out there. You can have um, actions or behaviors that become threatening to someone's job, their security in the workplace. Um, so it's a very broad term when you say threat. Uh, and drilling down and thinking about what does that mean within your institution, because that really frames what your response is going to be. So in most organizations, and we've discussed with Casey Clemens, that uh, they've been left pretty high level. So it's kind of hard for somebody down lower in the food chain to be able to say, well, is that a threat? Is it not a threat? So does that leave it to organizations to really come up with a good structure? Oh, absolutely. Um, coming up and, and deciding how you're going to handle and what, if you're gonna create a, a culture of safety within your organization, you have to think about what it means not to be safe or to make someone else not feel safe in that work environment. 
And so being able to define some of these terms so that people are put on notice, first of all, that that type of behavior is not acceptable, but then also to be able to take concrete actions to mitigate and stop those actions in their tracks uh, is very, very important. And we always fall back to policy. What does our policy say um, that is prohibited conduct in the workplace? And then you can begin the conversation. And many times just having a conversation about someone's behavior can alter that trajectory. Because what you ultimately want to do is decrease the severity and frequency of those events. And, you know, when we worked on the NQF state practices, we talked about frequency, severity, and impact, clinical, operational, and financial. Uh, before we talk about mitigation, and that's where our four, kind of our, the 4P model that we use uh, uh, is there. As we go through each of the, each of the words that are in the definition, uh, when I read harassing, when we look at the Merriam-Webster uh, uh, Dictionary, uh, to annoy persistently, to create an unpleasant or hostile situation uh, for especially by uninvited and unwelcome verbal or physical conduct. Now we're talking about more than one incident, and it's over time, there's a temporal component. So not only do you have to do, understand harassing, but these may be patterns and not just an incident. Can you help us with that? Sure. And uh, the patterns of behavior, and we also have to uh, have context and perceptions, are also going to be uh, players in that evaluation. But when you start to have a pattern of behavior where um, the incivility or the uh, threatening behavior uh, is observed over multiple incidents, and many times with multiple people, then we can bring that back to the employee and say, look, this isn't just a one-off. This is something that requires intervention. And we want to figure out what is the best strategy to either bring the employee back on track or to take more concrete disciplinary practice up to and including removal from service. Well, you know, and then that brings us to one that's really hard to put handles on and that's the term humiliating and the the legal dictionary is an act extremely destructive to one's self-respect or dignity boy hum, humiliation is something i feel but it, it it's very hard to kind of put it you know call that a scalpel or a gun or something isn't it absolutely and that's where perceptions come into play too because sometimes you have to manage uh, the expectations of the person. Uh, there, there could be a patient who felt like a medical procedure was humiliating because they had to disrobe or they had to be in front of someone of the opposite sex. Um, and certainly one of the things that we, we know in the clinical setting that if the care provider explains to them in advance what the procedure is going to be, this is what we're going to do, this is the why behind it, it, it can tamp down those expectations and create a more comfortable environment. You can take that same process and apply it into a workplace situation. For instance, 
in an emergency department, um, many times uh, time is of the essence. You have to speak quickly, sometimes pointedly, uh, sometimes correct on the on the moment uh, and and cor correct trajectory if somebody is getting offline, and they feel that that was a humiliating experience. Um, again, context, bringing it in, and sometimes just, just talking to the individual who felt humiliated and having a conversation with the person that they felt like was showing them a level of disrespect can go a long way into mitigating future occurrences. And you come to a meeting of the mind. One of the things that is one of the worst things that we can do is ignore it completely. Someone comes to you and tells you that they had this experience and you say, oh, that's just Dr. X, or that's just how that person is. Uh, that person needs to know how they're being perceived by other employees, and the employee needs to know, understand the context and why that occurred. Um, you wouldn't be pointed with somebody in just a, um, an average clinical setting you know, when everything's calm and you're just evaluating a, a, a patient, but certainly in an emergency department, especially if it's a trauma event, uh, you, you don't have the time or the luxury to stop and explain. And sometimes we can, we can educate both sides about how we can be a little more gentle, a little, and, and, and to be a little more open and receptive to those, those events that kind of stick in your craw. And sometimes just, just talking it out um, or having someone say, I understand how you might have felt, but this, this is what the context was. Those things can go a, lo a long way in repairing relationships and building a strength between your colleagues that um, may have been a bit fractured by a specific event. Well, we're going to talk in a few minutes about the different categories of violence. We're talking about the definitions, but humiliation is one that really comes into play when we talk about lateral violence within caregiver to caregiver, and also when there's a power gradient. Isn't that right? When there's a superior and an inferior that might be educational, but it may be just operational, that power gradient can tend to be abused. Is that correct? Absolutely. And one of the things we in who may be in a position of power need to understand um, the strength of the language that we use, the terminology that we use, and to have a bit of sensitivity uh, because if my boss corrects me, especially in a public setting, I'm going to feel humiliation um, and, and may um, Feel that I've been denigrated and dressed down. Um, you know, you certainly want to be sensitive, especially if there's that power differential. Whereas a colleague, if a colleague said, hey, you did X, Y, or Z, I might take that a little bit easier because I'm not being shown, it, it's a, it can be perceived more as a helpful comment than a criticism or something that's going to harm my reputation uh, with others. The next term in the uh, in the definition by the Joint Commission is bullying. And if we look in the legal dictionary, abuse and mistreatment of someone vulnerable by someone stronger, more powerful, etc., the actions and behavior of a bully. And that's where the power gradient really comes into play. And there can be 
bullying that can be initiated, but also retaliatory bullying uh, after a caregiver may report a safety event or other issues. What are your thoughts about bullying, the specifics of that power gradient worker to worker? Well, uh, bullying is probably one of the most destructive uh, forms to cohesive group dynamics as well as it can erode patient care. If you uh, feel that you're being bullied by someone, the natural human reaction is to avoid that person. You, you don't want to engage them. You want to limit your contact. It's a protective measure. Well, when you do that in a clinical setting, and that is the, um, the provider, and you're there as, as the nurse who's trying to carry out the doctor's instructions, if you don't understand something, you're not going to feel comfortable in going and asking for clarification. You're also not going to feel comfortable if you feel that there is a stop the line moment where you should say something uh, because you're you're fearful not only of the the immediate visceral reaction of the of the person that you're trying to point something out to, but even more important, the retaliation that could be a career defining moment. It could be uh, it could really create problems for you with others if that person engages in sabotage, which is another aspect of the Joint Commission's de definition. Right, and so sabotage, you know, a major medical center, in fact, number one in the world, MD Anderson, number one in US News and World Rankings in almost every ranking, uh, you've got nation state activities that might occur and not even know that you have an operative that might be trying to sabotage or steal something that's there and they might be sabotaging someone else or even the organization. That's right. Professional sabotage uh, really cuts um, not only to the heart of the organization or the individual, but also to the heart of the organization. Because when you steal someone's intellectual property or try to uh, discredit that person for personal gain, um, all of those things do not advance science, and they create tensions and uh, potential ramifications far beyond the initial event. So uh, those are something that we in the security field need to be sensitive to and, and help develop the protocols and protections for those staff and also mechanisms for reporting it so that immediate mitigation efforts can begin. Um, there's an interesting story about uh, a rabbi who said, um, I, I just love this story because um, one of his um, congregants spoke ill of him and, um, and really damaged his reputation. He confronted the, the congregant and the congregant said they were sorry. Uh, what can I do to make amends? And the rabbi said, well, you can go up to the highest mountain take a feather pillow and release all the feathers into the air. And the man said, okay, will that fix the problem? He said, no, that what will fix the problem is step two. You go and collect all the feathers back because once it's out in the air, once it's out there to correct the negative becomes almost an impossibility. And, and I've always thought about that, that story 
story when it comes to sabotage, especially with someone's career. Sometimes even an allegation of an event can do irreparable harm. Especially in this, and uh, uh, Chief Adcox is listening and will be reacting, but we, be, in our green room discussion, we talk about this uh, highly lucrative process of generating uh, rage porn where we can get people angry about something and a false allegation can play to the strength of their being mad and being maybe disrespected and take a life of its own. So uh, with sabotage, libel and defamation are both legal terms and they would be coupled to that, wouldn't they, if you're working with professional to professional, especially in in an academic center like yours. Absolutely, and certainly that can take place. But what we, what is hard to have actionable are rumors. You know, uh, you can sabotage someone's career with an ill-placed rumor, and before you know it, it spreads like wildfire, and getting back to the origin of that rumor is almost impossible. And we see this with social media, um, where people will have anonymous posts. Oh, this doctor did this, uh, did X, Y, or Z. This person was bad because I heard that they did X, Y, or Z. And it begins with that anonymous posting. And then the rumor mill takes over and really does the work for you. And this information disorder of misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, we've learned that it's very lucrative to spread uh, the attention getting disinformation, maybe six or seven times the stickiness in Facebook and Twitter and, and social media. So then, we, you know, we've talked about, um, when we talk about assault, we immediately think about the physical, but our topic today is really the non-physical, which is verbal. How do you tackle the verbal abuse? Well, we assess um, the level of verbal abuse and, and we look at the context with which it's offered. We talk about the difference between effective violence and targeted violence. So uh, effective violence is that momentary flash. Someone gets bad news about uh, a diagnosis or um, bad news about the outcome of a procedure um, and that, or they're struggling with pain and a nurse comes to do a procedure that becomes painful and they lash out. That's that effective moment. And when we evaluate those, we look at the context of it. And if it's emotion-driven, high emotion, a a quick flash, and the person in the, when things calm down, is able to apologize, accept responsibility for those events, then we know that that's someone that we can work with. And then we work with the clinical team to manage the pain uh, so that they know what, uh, or to manage a trigger. So we've had some patients who lose their uh, their cool when they have to wait, uh, in a, you know, a a longer than necessary in their mind time for an appointment, or appointments change and uh, their scheduling changes. Um, we can manage those trigger points and deal with those issues. What is really insidious are those um, threats that are tied to a specific grievance. So in the medical profession, if you feel that a provider has caused harm through uh, 
what they believe is uh, some sort of malpractice or malfeasance. And uh, even if it is, and this is where most people don't understand, uh, they think, well, that's been examined by the medical board or they can make a complaint and they can do all these things. They're, they can redress their grievance. Um, but if the, if the grievance is completely uh, in the mind or in the eye of the, uh, the person who's offended, the grievance, logic and reason aren't going to play into that. They have emotions tied into that. And those are the more difficult ones for us to, uh, to mitigate. There are a no number of strategies that we employ there. The first is just an easy contact to let them know someone's listening, give them an opportunity to vent, give them alternatives to uh, redress that grievance. Um, and, and what we're trying to do is show them that they have value, they have worth, and they're being heard. The outcome may still be the same, but giving them the time and patience to deal with that helps mitigate the event. The really tough ones are when those goalposts keep moving. When you meet this issue, then they jump to the next and jump to the next and jump to the next. And you get some fatigue there um, with your mitigation strategies on trying to address these. And at that time, you have to set uh, guardrails up. And um, they may still rail against them, but then when you demonstrate all the steps and all the things that you've done for them, that injustice warrior um, or that grievance collector, you begin to, to let a little bit of wind out of their argument. You begin to, to because they've had some success and you can, you can celebrate those successes with them, they, be, they move on because now you have addressed their concerns. Those are some of the most difficult ones for us to wrap our arms around and they're the most frustrating uh, for our clinicians who are truly trying to do the best they can to provide the best care they can in a timely, efficient manner. And these people begin to suck all the, the oxygen out of the room. They, they begin to uh, inordinately occupy your time. And so that's where your patient advocacy groups, your social work, your threat assessors, they can step in, alleviate that for the provider and then begin to manage that problem patient or that problem family member. And that's how you mitigate the grievance downstream. So uh, you really have two avenues. You have the, the ones that are the flashpoints that you can reason with afterwards. And then you have those who are the most difficult to work with and those who feel that they have a grievance that's not being addressed to their satisfaction. And many times these folks have other issues um, psychological, mental illness, uh, borderline personality disorders. We've seen some of those. And, um, and so you have to take them almost step by step. You know, the, the, the last term to discuss the definition is aggression. And the legal dictionary uh, uh, calls it a, a forceful action or procedure, such as an unprovoked attack, especially when intended to dominate or master. And again, when we look at this, there could be that immediate flashpoint, but also some of this kind of aggression, especially in the lateral violence environments, is protracted over time, isn't it, where you've got somebody who is um, intending to dominate or master, be they with a power gradient or no power gradient in the hospital or academic center. 
Fair statement? Absolutely. Um, Calhoun and Weston uh, have done some research on this, and they talk about um, the need to regain control, um, and that being one of the motivating factors for aggression. When people become aggressive, that fight or flight, um, they want to regain control over a situation for which they feel they don't have control. And so um, understanding where they're they're coming from and what their ultimate goal is, is part of your mitigation strategy. So you've got to give them some measure of control somewhere, but what you are trying to do is channel and funnel that, um, that anger or that need for control into a healthy outlet. One of the things we talked about is when someone threatens litigation, that's really a healthy outlet because it's a legal process it's a civilized process. It, it is a protective um, way for them to, and so you, you point them in that direction. That may sound counterintuitive. Why are you pointing them to a legal process? Because it gives them a measure of control, something that they are doing positive to address their grievance. Uh, it may be complaining to uh, internal structures to try and, um, have uh, an, an aggression outlet that is positive. If, if they feel that things are spinning out of control and they have no outlet for it, physical violence and aggression can occur. And that's what you want to, that, that is what we're, we are working against, is to keep someone from running out of good viable outlets and options for their anger, their aggression, uh, and, and have it morph into an actual physical event. What a great description, man. That should be tattooed on everybody's forehead. I mean, that is really a great, that's a great statement uh, because, uh, you know, uh, and, and it's counterintuitive as you say, you think, oh, well, they're threatening to sue and you're saying, here's a good structure, a structure through which to vent this energy. Uh, and that makes uh, so much sense. So Vicki, we've discussed the fact that we, uh, a lot of us really like the toolkit for mitigating violence in the workplace that was uh, developed uh, uh, by uh, AONL. And can you just walk through each of these steps and just give us uh, uh, your take on where we can get started and why it's important? Uh, I'm happy to. Um, when we look at the workplace violence toolkit that's provided for us here, when you look at uh, step one, it's really to understand the universe of workplace violence. And it, it means more than an act of physical aggression or physical violence. It's those nuanced pieces that uh, give us an opportunity for prevention. And that's really what we want to do is prevent an escalation, either in frequency or severity of an event um, that would culminate into an act of physical violence. So understanding that sometimes the best intervention, just like in, in the medical world, is to catch things early and address them head on. Uh, and that prevents this from, from really morphing and into something more insidious. So when we go into step two, uh, that creates a culture of nonviolence, that's so much for our employees 
and for those who are seeking treatment and visitors. We're going to set the, the stage. We're going to set the guardrails up. First of all, our staff don't have to tolerate it. It is not part of the job. It is not something that should be acceptable in our uh, places of healing. And I've seen some great signs uh, that have gone up in hospitals around the nation where they begin to put those who come to the hospital on notice that this is a place of healing. It's not a place, uh, uh, it's a, a place of calm, reflective healing, uh, that we're of civility, uh, that we're here to help, and we can't help if things get out of control. So um, they, they, their messaging is, is, is one of we're here to help. Please help us attend to your needs by keeping things civil by not raising your voice, by not being argumentative, by following the rules. So setting that culture of, of, of nonviolence, not just for the employees. We always tell the employees, this, these are our expectations for behavior in the workplace. Let's, uh, let's also convey those same expectations and have follow-up mechanisms for when someone is unable to control themselves or violates our rules how do we deal with that person? When we talk about zero tolerance, it's a zero tolerance for bad behavior. It doesn't mean that every bad behavior is going to result in ejection from the hospital. So you may have zero tolerance for behaviors, certain behaviors, but that doesn't mean that there aren't mitigating circumstances that would allow that person to stay there, but they're just going to have to adhere to our, uh, our environment of care. They're going to have to be able to follow our rules. And when we talk about assess and mitigate risk factors, this is, this is so important from a standpoint of prevention. So when you catch behaviors, when someone begin, uh, enters the hospital, and they begin acts of incivility with your reception personnel. Let's address it right then. Let's not let them get a pass. Let's not let them think that that's going to be okay. Let them know what the rules of behavior are. So then when they get back into the clinical setting, they don't feel like, well, it was acceptable out there. It's going to be acceptable in here. And I'm going to take it up a step to get what I want. And so, what we what we're, that goes back to your culture of safety when you're setting these expectations. And so there are a number of really great tools that are out there when a behavior occurs to be able to evaluate, is this a low threat situation? Is this a, a moderately threatening uh, threat uh, situation? Yeah. Is this a high threat situation? And we look at structured judgment tools. Many hospitals use the brosette which is a six-question uh, structured judgment tool. It's very easy. And what it does is it tells you if the, if the patient or family members exhibit these types of behaviors, you need to be on guard that there could be an escalation. Uh, and then there are others um, that are out there, the waiver 21, um, stalking assessments. Uh, we've had patients that uh, have unhealthy uh, attachments to their caregivers. So it's finding the right tools and gathering as much information as you can so
so that you can properly assess where this person is, what the context of the behavior was, and is there a potential for escalation? And then step four, developing a workplace violence prevention program. I think you guys are really leading the way there. Well, uh, we are, we stand on the shoulders of giants, I can tell you that. Uh, we look at the research, we look at the work that's been done on workplace violence prevention. And what we wanna do again is get ahead of the program. Identify behaviors while they're relatively minor, have intervention strategies to address them so that they are on notice and we can prevent that um, escalation in frequency and severity. Assess and then take those mitigation steps. We talk a, a, a great deal around here. Sometimes the Hawthorne effect is what you need. You just shine a light on it. You just pay attention to the person. You let them know that they're heard, but then you, accept, you, you set the boundaries. You set up those guardrails let them know in advance what the consequences are for violating those rules and many times you can get compliance even with some of the most difficult difficult individuals or people with um chaos in their background you can uh, certainly be able to uh, set those expectations in this environment this healing environment that's great. And then uh, from the standpoint of continuously training and deploying staff, I know you also are really leading the way there. Your thoughts? Right. And, and this is so important because um, there's constant turnover in any healthcare facility. Uh, you may have contract nurses, you may have uh, technicians, you certainly have abundant shift change. So being able to have those touch points through emails, safety moments at the beginning of every meeting, safety moment at the start of every day with your clinical team as part of the handoff. What are some of the problems that we've seen with this patient or these family members uh, over the previous shift and what, it, what was successful in mitigating some of their concerns? <coughs> Excuse me. Those are some of the, so you've got that, you can do de-escalation training, uh, CPI is out there. It's been extremely effective. Um, having touch points with your security team in the unit, talking about everything from active shooter. Uh, we've had active shooter, not drills, but touch points where we go and we walk into a clinical space and say, okay, if there was an active shooter, what would you do first? How would you protect yourself? How would you protect your patients? How would you deny, defend? What, what strategies, and then you have a conversation while we're in the cool light of day and they begin to look at their workspace differently. That's a training touch point. We do 15 minute sessions in the workplace, just talking about active shooter. It also promotes conversations. Now they have the business card of the person who they spoke with. And if they have a workplace violence issue of concern, they have someone that another human being, hey, I just want to run this by you. And we begin the conversation. Safety and workplace violence prevention should be in almost every conversation we have uh, when we're talking about training and developing our folks. Fantastic. And then as the Joint Commission says, measurement and having this continuous, this systems. So uh, final point, um, your thoughts about evaluation and measurement of the impact of your systems? 
Well, it, it's funny, you know, we started those 15-minute um, touch points uh, almost a year ago now, and the feedback that we have gotten from the clinical staff is amazing. Um, they feel better connected with um, our uh, workplace violence prevention program members. They feel appreciated. They feel that the institution is taking it seriously. And one of the most important things is when someone calls and reports an incident, we follow up with that person most of the time within 24 hours, unless they've gone off shift and we can't reach them, they're sleeping. There are a few minor exceptions, but the main thing is when they report it, that they feel like they get an immediate feedback. We're here, we're listening. And when you do those things, when, when people feel that they're being heard and listened to, and then they see the actions and the explanations of why we're doing things, the confidence level begins, and then they begin to share that with their colleagues. Again, let's make that rumor mill that was so destructive uh, in the sabotage area work for us in the uh, training development feedback arena. But your, your team needs to see that you are engaged, that you are responsive, and that you are listening. Thank you very much, Vicki. Uh, Bill, your thoughts, uh, any concluding thoughts of what you've heard Vicki say? Well, first off, thank you, Vicki. And I think that you've really recapped the entire uh, workplace violence uh, prevention approach and program. The only thing I will say from, from a different uh, vantage point is, uh, number one is, is we are looking very strongly at making workplace violence its own separate risk on our risk registry, meaning that's how important it is, and it should be that important to every institution. Uh, number two, um, the commitment has to be from your board and your CEO and your executive leadership. They've got to voice it. They've got to be uh, got to be behind it. They need to be able to meet at least quarterly, discuss just nothing but workplace violence issues, where the program's at, how things are, what can be done. Then you have to have a, an ongoing regular group at a higher level, but a mid-management level that's very much engaged. And then all the way down to specialty areas where you've identified at your, that your hospital or healthcare locations where, where the more pro, where the uh, greatest problem is. This is where, where being in a sophisticated program, you actually have the ability to do the metrics and ability to do the an analysis and find out where, where are we having the most problems and what's driving that so that you can get to the root cause and develop some solutions for particular areas. And then the other thing I would tell you is, as you know, we approach our, our work from the four P's. It's prevention, it's preparedness, it's, it's protection, and then it's the performance improvement. Now, thinking of it from, from, from the protection, this is again talking about a layer system. So when we talk about workplace violence, you can be talking about everything from where you have passive weapons detection, uh, whether you have these systems in place where there's reporting that's going on, whether you have your security personnel, you have your frontline personnel within the actual critical care or medical care, the clinical areas that are working, all these layers. Talk about your, your preparedness. That's, that's when you're going into this issue of everybody being on the same page. Vicki spoke very well about some of the different things that we have and actually doing active shooter meetings and exercises at the at the pod at the clinical pod at the at the clinical areas with the staff at the time it's very quick very very uh, uh very efficient and then you actually can test some of the systems that are in place but then there's also the prevention and remember we 
We talk about the two types, specific types of prevention, primary prevention. This is where Vicki talks about identifying these, these, these comments, these behaviors of concern, uh, potential so that you can have early intervention. You can have the, the multidisciplinary teams, uh, uh, your behavioral intervention team take a look at these uh, multiple groups of cross-functional uh, disciplinary groups that are looking into it. So yes, you have that, that first level of prevention. Then you have your secondary level of prevention that if something was to occur, that there are systems in place through all the protection and so forth where you can make a response which really limits the damage, limits the, the, the problems that are occurring. That's where this active shooter prevention comes in. This is where the active shooter response is teaching individuals what to do. This is secondary prevention. This is where we have our police component within our, our facilities very much engaged. This is where you have the stop the bleed kits, the med tech comes into play. How do you reduce the, the damage that's being occurred and, and getting things back to, to normal? And once all of these things are in place, you're constantly looking at how can we get better? What's the performance improvement? What were the near misses? What was the policy things that need to be readdressed? And one of the things that you're talking about today, and I'll leave you with this, is this issue around definitions. Definitions are, are going to be critical as we move forward to teach our employees. And, and they're going to be, and it's going to be location to location. When we're talking about one of the things, talk about humiliation, humiliation, uh, there's cultural issues in play. We've had situations where some, uh, one of the, one of the uh, uh, evening shift people goes into a room to check on the patient. Patient has to be of a certain faith. Husband gets upset because someone gets to see his spouse in a different manner. Uh, it, it, and so they feel like they're being humiliated, humiliated, it's a real problem. Again, we're talking about uh, such a global issue with a bunch of different uh, variables that we have to come to agreement what, what it is at the institutional level that we will consider as part of this and what are going to be our responses in order to keep everybody safe. Hospitals and healthcare places should be, be very calm. They should be places where we're going to do nothing but, but looking at the quality of patient care, where we're going to look at saving lives, and we're going to look at comforting patients and loved ones uh, alike and taking care of them. So again, um, I, I really appreciate it, but I do think the definitions are going to be critical. So thank you both so very much. It's been an honor for me to have uh, had some of my training at Anderson and you all are just doing a world-class job in this new area, which really is just an area of discovery. And uh, so thank you, Vicki, and thank you, Bill. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. My pleasure. You're muted, Chip. So, John, we'd like to thank you uh, for hanging in here with us and really helping us bookend this with some focus on our leadership, our senior leaders, uh, chief operating officers, CEOs, and our board members who you who you have very uh, a great deal of experience uh, uh, talking with. I want to kind of um, we have a lot of them that join us and have joined us over the years. John, your reaction to what we're seeing with this broadened definition, what's the role specifically? What's the call to action to our senior leaders? Well, it's very simple. Nothing's going to happen without your leadership in an active way. Uh, it's the same sort of thing that we're seeing right now. And I won't get off on this discussion other than to say that uh, most CEOs, most hospitals in the country over the last three years have been responding to uh, to uh, COVID. Now they're using it as an excuse to not get involved in training anymore. If the leaders, and that includes the board, 
don't aggressively say, look, we have got to change this equation. We've got to get in front of all aspects of it. And we've got to let everyone know that, uh, that, that violence, whatever form it might take, and as we've been talking about, it takes a lot of forms, will not be tolerated. I, there's just no way we're going to tolerate it. We might, you know, and we will hopefully work with uh, a human uh, bent and trying to uh, correct behavior, but we're certainly not going to tolerate it. And that goes to the heart of the physician staff as well. I can't tell you how many times over the last 20 years I've encountered a hospital I've worked with, and uh, there are a couple of doctors who are considered untouchable and they throw things and they yell and they scream and there's just simply no excuse for it anymore. Um, a couple of things. First of all, I don't think that we've emphasized enough how important HR is in this equation. As a matter of fact, I think that's the, one of the most critical appointments that a, a CEO can make uh, is who is in charge of HR. Because if they're just throwing rules at people, uh, then they are ripe for the sort of situation that intimidates people because they're not working with them. If it's if HR becomes a pejorative, uh, they've got all sorts of capable uh, capabilities of being weaponized uh, by unscrupulous people. But if you've got a sensitive, knowing, concerned HR director who is going to prevent that from happening and can can discuss hotspots with the senior leadership uh, that, that can be uh, the subject of intervention and intelligent intervention. That's that's uh, absolutely beyond the worth of uh, silver and gold and whatever. It, it's uh, something that absolutely is going to be required as we move forward, especially in periods of time where we're in right now, where uh, we've got massive shortages of nurses, massive pressures on people leaving, doctors leaving, etc. cetera. Uh, we need a good, careful HR department, not, some, not one that's going to be a police force per se. Um, now, as far as boards are concerned, the buck stops there. We all know that, whether it's a, a for-profit and the few for-profits we have, relatively speaking, around the country, or whether in hospital terms, uh, it's the normal hospital that's trying to do things on a uh, an efficient and uh, money-neutral uh, way, or at least making a little. Uh, the board is too often, <coughs> pardon me, made up of people who are uh, not savvy in medicine. They, uh, they may have been on that position for quite a while, but they're usually put on boards because they have business experience and they have financial experience. And sometimes it's simply because they're leaders in the community. We have got to change this equation. I want every board member in America to be shaking in their boots if they're not doing the right thing because of the potential of personal liability. Now, I, I don't particularly uh, say that I'm a fan of a particular senator who came up with the idea beyond Sarbanes-Oxley of putting Sarbanes-Oxley on the backs of uh, board members in healthcare. But I'm to the point of saying if it's not going to be the mandate of the board to get things done. Uh, in any arena, but especially in terms of violence and, and the response to it, uh, and in terms of not letting HR uh, become a, uh, a police force, uh, it's got to be mandated by the board. <clears throat> and if the board can't figure that out, then we've got to get people on there who can. So, John, this is, uh, and, and this gets at the heart of the issue of resources. This is going to cost money, uh, dark green dollars, cash, real dark green dollars. And number two, it's going to co cost capacity, the light green dollars of operational staff when things are very short. Um, your thoughts there on monetizing this and being able to argue this as a risk manager to the board and the CFO to say, this requires money. Well, I, I think basically it comes down to this. What is a hospital there to accomplish, especially a hospital? 
Uh, it's a public trust. And in fact, you have to have a license that's based on public need. Uh, that means that you are not just uh, taking care of the farm, so to speak, taking care of the hospital on its own. You're taking care of that community. And if you're not rising to the level that we know you need to be at, uh, then you're not you're not uh, complying with your, your basic charter and your basic license. Now, why that's important is because if you're not willing to spend the money for safety, for instance, for patient safety, if you're not willing to spend the money for education on on uh, workplace violence and uh, holding people's hands uh, as necessary to be able to get them to understand that uh, certain protocols are simply not acceptable, then uh, you're, you're violating your license. We have been non-aggressive in this country about holding hospitals really to uh, to answer uh, and to be responsible for fulfilling their obligation to the community. And in too many instances with the billboards that are put up and the uh, happy talk that goes around about how we're the best hospital here and we're the best by that measure, uh, that doesn't impress me at all. I want to know how responsive you are in every single solitary way to the needs of the community. That hasn't been done. I think that's something else that the board needs to con confront very definitely. And that also impinges on everything we're talking about today. So, John, you, you know, you and I wrote an article years ago about uh, uh, about a, an NPS or a, a, Nash, a, a National Transportation Board for safety. Uh, and, you know, this idea has been bannered around forever. But in, in essence, you as a, a commercial pilot and me as a private pilot, both yeah, me much fewer hours, but both jet pilots and serious and landing in serious places. Uh, every pilot is a probabilistic risk assessment person. You know, yes. you're looking at the at the risk, threat, vulnerability of any mission that you go on. And so you're an attorney as well. So isn't there enormous liability that's been created by this new definition? I would think that organizations, boards, chief risk officers need to understand that if they don't do this properly, they're at risk for enormous consequences in litigation. Is, is that a fair statement? I mean, that's what it looks like to me. Well, it is a fair statement, but the problem is that most boards don't understand this. They don't believe it. Uh, they really think that the, the insurance policy that almost all of them buy, the boards buy against uh, liability, is going to save them uh, from the hassles of having to worry about uh, legal liability. Uh, it's just not the case. And I think as time goes by, <laughs> as we come to the reckoning, the fact that we cannot continue this non-system, as George Alverson once called it, uh, medicine in the United States, it's got it's got to change or it's going to collapse. Um, as we look at, uh, at what's down the road, we've got to expect responsibility and professionalism from our boards. Yes, I realize, and I've, I've dealt with and worked with so many people on boards who are fine, upstanding, wonderful members of the community trying to do their best. But it may be time, as I say, to get professional board members in there who understand that they're liable but they also are paid to do a job. Right now, it's all voluntary, and it's just not worth it. Well, John, many thanks. Uh, we've run a few minutes over, and we know that people are needing their continuing medical education and CEU credits uh, uh, for the time period. We're going to stop now and uh, listen to um, uh, and and have the voice of the patient with Jenny uh, Dingman. But, John, we'd like to have you back. And, and we've been had great reviews on our first workplace violence. This is a big area. We're likely going to do a workplace vi violence three and get into these mitigation systems. And so we've 
you so much. We think you you're just such a great voice to uh, uh, to to leaders, and we know the leaders really really uh, uh, need help in this area. So we're so grateful uh, for you. We're going to close now with words from Jenny Dingman. For those that are watching the extended session, you're hearing from Dr. Boats and hearing uh, some additional content. But we'll close with uh, Jenny Dingman. Uh, Jenny uh, was uh, the um, uh, actually won the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety uh, Award. Uh, she has been uh, a steadfast, uh, a steadfast supporter of uh, patient safety and quality for for many, many years. And uh, we feel so blessed to have her uh, share uh, her final thoughts with us. And we'll close uh, with Jenny right now. That was really wonderful. Really appreciate our speakers and all of the knowledge and wisdom that you have given us today. Again, I would like to thank everyone here for coming. And please, again, I urge you to share the recordings with your friends, neighbors, and colleagues. Looking forward to our program next month, and God bless everyone here. Thank you all, and that uh, that ends our session. And those that uh, would like to come back for resources, they'll be on our website. And those that are on the podcast, uh, go to www.safetyleaders.org. Thank you, God bless, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.